Let's be turning in our Bibles, if you don't mind, to Genesis chapter 2. We are continuing in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. We are speeding up and slowing down and speeding up and slowing down depending on what we find in front of us on a weekly basis. The section that we will have in front of us today, which spans from verse 4 of chapter 2 down through verse 17 of chapter 2, has some very important thoughts, but we need to get a bigger chunk here as we go through it so that we can get the big picture. We have been saying throughout this section up to this point that what we have seen Moses talking about is the story of creation. That's pretty obvious. But I think the thing that sometimes is not so obvious because we get lost in the trees and don't necessarily always see the big forest, you know that idiom, that really what these verses are proclaiming to us is that the glory of God is on display. Now, as we tend to do from time to time, it's important for us to define our terms. When we talk about glory, we're not talking about the idea necessarily that God's just shiny. I told you not long ago that I asked my son, my younger son, what it meant that God was glorious, and he said, I think it means that he's shiny. Well, I think God is shiny, but that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is that God is great. God's glory is the sum or the collection together of all of His attributes. And what we have seen so far throughout this story, a true story, is that the greatness of God, the the sum, the accumulation of His attributes are on display. Now, we do not necessarily see every one in detail, but there are a few that have stood out in stark relief. We, of course, have seen His power. I mean, after all, how hard was it for God to make the world? I mean, He just spoke it into existence. It, It wasn't hard at all. We have seen His wisdom, that He created it in perfection. We have seen the inherent beauty of God, for the creation itself reflects His great beauty. We have seen His providence, that not only did He create a world that was inhabitable, but it's a beautiful place that we can enjoy. And I think the thing that perhaps is a little bit more subtle, but I think perhaps one of the things that Moses wanted to highlight in a chief and clear way, and I think we're going to see it today, is that the greatness of God, the glory of God, is shown through His grace, or to say it another way, God's glorious grace is on display in creation. And as I said to you a moment ago, if we lose the forest for the trees because we're trying to make Genesis chapters 1 and 2 into something that they're not, and just parenthetically, what I'm saying there is that Too often we come to these texts to argue our particular position on how long it took to make everything we see around us. And that may or may not be the best way to approach this text in certain contexts. What I'm saying to you is primarily that's not why Moses wrote. Perhaps it would be wise for us to go back and say why Moses wrote in the first place. We have talked about this to some length, but it bears repeating for our case today. And that is, when Moses wrote this book, in fact, the first five books of the Old Testament, but in particular Genesis, what was it that he was trying to communicate? Well, first of all, you have to think about to whom he was writing. Moses was writing to the Israelites, the Hebrew people. From where had they just come? They had just come out of slavery in Egypt. They had been mistreated, abused, And basically, for several generations, for 400-odd years, all they had known was captivity, pain, 
They had seen what it was like to live under a horrific, tyrannical king. They had lived in a land multiplied with gods. But a man named Moses was chosen by the one true covenant God to go rescue the people from Israel. And after much affliction upon the king of Egypt and all of his subjects, in fact, destroying the king of Egypt and his army, God brings Israel to Mount Sinai, gives them a covenant, and then takes them on a journey to the promised land. Because of what they had seen, because of what they would soon see, what was it that they needed to know? Israel had learned by this point that they were weak. Israel had learned by this point that left to themselves, they were insufficient. Insufficient to fight their enemies. Insufficient to sustain their own lives by feeding their children. As parents who have children, we we long to take care of them and to take care of them really, really well. But what would it have been like to be a Hebrew father or mother, and you're wandering around in the wilderness largely because you sinned against God and didn't believe Him, and now there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to feed them, and every single day, the only way that your children will be clothed, sheltered, or fed is if the invisible, one true Covenant-keeping God shows up and gives you bread from the sky and water from a rock and drowns your enemies in an ocean and guides you with a pillar of fire and meets with you in an erected tent in the middle of your camp and promises still, despite your unfaithfulness, that he'll take you over the river into the land of milk and honey And keep his promises to your father Abraham. What if that's all you have to do for your kids? I mean, for us as Westerners, what do we do? Get up, we go to work, we drive our cars, we put gas in our cars, our refrigerators and pantries are full. When we're tired and don't want to cook or do dishes, we go out to eat, we go on vacations. We have buying power. These Hebrew people had no buying power. They weren't safe, they weren't secure, they weren't capable, they had nothing. What did they need to know? Well, that's why Moses wrote. Moses wrote because he wanted the Hebrew people to know that their God was powerful. Moses wrote because he wanted his people to know that their God was wise and providential. And perhaps most of all, Moses wanted his people to know that their God was full of grace. Israel was sojourning, partially because God was taking them to their new land, but of course, largely, the delay in their sojourn came because of their own unfaithfulness and their lack of faith in the one true God. And I have to believe that as Moses sat down to write these words, he had all of that in mind. Are we really that much different? And this is why I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees as we get lost in unnecessary detail for this particular context. When the assembly 
gathered together to hear Moses and the elders read the Word, what did they primarily need to know? They weren't arguing over the duration of creation. They weren't arguing over species. What did they need to know? That context, those people needed to know that they had a great and glorious God. What does this assembly need to know today? Well, as we begin, what is on your mind right now? I know many of you and most of you pretty well. I can guess, knowing most of you pretty well, some of the things that are on your mind. In fact, within three guesses, I know most of you pretty well. I could probably hit it pretty quickly. How does this text speak to you? Well, with what has happened in the week that's gone by or maybe in the recent years gone by, or the unknown nature of tomorrow or the next day or the months to come, do you feel weak when you really are quiet and alone and there's no posturing necessary in front of people to show how strong and capable you are? Are you fearful? Anxious, regretful, shamed. This text was necessary for the Hebrew people to look back on the past and see God's providential hand. It was necessary for them to trust in the ongoing providential grace of God. And we ourselves now come to this text as a gathered assembly that is sojourning, looking for final rest, and we need the same word today that our great and glorious God is for us. He is kind, He is gracious, and He will always take care of His people. So we come to the text with this in mind today. The verses that are in front of us for today are not exactly like what we saw in chapter 1. In some ways, Moses now comes and tells the story of creation in another way. It's not an antithetical story. It's not a competing story. It's a parallel story. But there is a different emphasis here, and Moses does that on purpose. So with that in mind, let's read this text, and I want you to read it with Moses' primary intention in mind, which you've already communicated today, that he wanted his people to know certain things about their God as they sojourned. How would the Spirit speak to us today as we are so similar? This is God's Word. These are the generations, verse 4, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there was gold. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless the reading of His Word. I said to you several times last week that ultimately as we look at creation, creation shouts to us that God is abundantly gracious. We used the word last week, effusive, which means to pour out. The English language is beautiful, like most languages are, and some words precisely communicate certain ideas. And whether or not you take this word and tuck it away in your little arsenal for days to come, I want you to at least get the concept. And that is that God effusively always pours out His grace upon His people. And ultimately, what we're finding here at the beginning of chapter 2, as Moses gives this parallel account of creation, is that he's highlighting the creation of man, that man is at the center of God's affections. And I think what we find here, once again in this text, is that God's grace is abundant. It's effusive. There's three major things I want us to see in the text today. So, God made the world for us to do three basic things. The first, I think, that we find is that God made the world for us to emulate Him. This is a little bit subtle, but I want to point it out to you. Notice in verse 5, there is no bush of the field yet. There's no small plant of the field. None of that had yet sprung up. There's a water source, but it's not being channeled or irrigated properly to make all these things bear food for the feeding of humans. Now, back in verse 4, what Moses is doing here is introducing his topic. For the next few chapters, Moses is going to unfold how the beginning of mankind really took shape. In fact, he will do this throughout the rest of the book. He will introduce new topics by saying, these are the generations of. In this case, it's the heavens and earth. Later, it'll be Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and so on. But here, what he's saying is at the very beginning, after God had made the atmosphere, the arena, the sphere in which his chief creation, mankind, would live, then he begins to let human history unfold. Notice also in verse 4 that he is called the Lord God. Back in chapter 1, it just referred to him as God. Throughout this small section, Moses again and again calls him the Lord God. Now, this may seem incidental and it's very easy to skip over, but this is really, really rare in Moses' writings. What is he doing? Well, the simple term God just means the one true powerful God. But the word Lord, if you've been around Christian teaching for very long, carries with it something a little bit different. And that is that God is the self-existent one who is for His people. So He is the one true God, unmatched in power. But He is also the self-existent Lord who is always for His people. Moses joins these two names together to make a point. The names of God throughout the Bible communicate certain things about His character. As Moses begins this new section, it begins to really focus in on mankind. It's almost before like he had a huge telescope and he was looking at the panorama of creation. 
Now he takes a microscope and he narrows it down and he looks at mankind. And as he does that, he says, not only is this the one true powerful God, but he is the covenant one true powerful God. Why does he do that? Well, as Moses sort of microscopes, if we can make that into a verb, down on the creation of humanity, he wants humans to know, and Moses wants Israel to know, that God loves them intensely, and he has a purpose for them. And what we find here in the next verse is that he wants them to emulate him. Well, how do we get that? We see sort of in the middle of verse 5 that the Lord God had not caused it to rain yet in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So, there's, shru- there's like vegetation around. We saw that back in chapter 1. There's certain kinds of plants that bear seed and reproduce themselves. But there are other kinds of plants that had not yet really taken root and begun to grow. In particular, the kind of vegetation that would sustain life. And it's interesting that that has not happened according to Moses because God has not yet sent rain and man has not yet shown up to do anything with the land. Now, we've already said back in chapter 1 that the destiny of this planet and the destiny of humanity are very much tied up together. That is why in Romans chapter 8 that Paul makes the point that creation is groaning. Creation is under some measure of a curse itself. And it's awaiting the finality of our adoption. In that section, Paul says that adoption has happened but it is not yet final. It's an already not yet kind of thing. And creation, and of course Paul is using personification here in creation, creation in a personified way is looking forward to the time that the sons and daughters of God will experience the finality of their adoption. And then creation, along with us, will cease to groan, for it will be refashioned in perfection. The destiny of this planet is bound up with our destiny, which is why, as you see the end of the Bible, we do not live in a disembodied state in some ethereal, wispy place. We are in a perfected state in a perfect place. As I've already said to you, that is why we love it here. It explains, at least in part, why we don't like the prospect of death. And it's also why, as we begin to unfold the idea that really the Bible sort of ends like it began, though it ends better than it began, it's beautiful. And it leads us to expectation that God indeed is making all things new. But that's for the future. In this text, Moses says that there wasn't a man yet to work the ground. There's some kind of water source in verse 6, and Theologians have argued over this for years as to what it is. The ESV translated it as a mist, that there's some kind of deep water source that whenever the certain heat of the day comes, that it releases a mist from the ground. Some people think it's just a spring and that it gave rise to the various rivers in the region. Regardless, there's a water source. It's there. It's there to be used, but it's not yet being channeled in a constructive way. And notice what God does in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's interesting here, the ground in Hebrew is the word Adama. And, of course, the name of the first man is Adam, which just means man. 
Moses is using a play on words here. The man came from the ground. Adam came from Adama. It's the place that gave him birth. It's the place that he would work. And it's the place to which he would one day return. Mankind and creation itself is bound together. It's clear here in this text. It's interesting here as you think about it that God created all the resources. He made the world. He made the water source to make sure that that world would bear food for his chief creation. But mankind had to participate in this. This demonstrates to us a very important tension or interplay that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. That God is perfectly gracious in His providence, but that humans have distinct responsibility. It shows up from the very beginning. This also communicates to us that work is not part of the curse. We will explore this more in chapter 3, but eventually, because of the curse upon mankind, work becomes hard because of the curse. But work existed before the curse. And essentially what God is doing is He's saying, I'm making all the natural resources, but I am leaving it to you to do something with it. But lest we overemphasize human responsibility, remember, God's the one who spoke it into existence. In fact, God's the one who breathed the breath of life into Adam himself. So Adam was no longer just dusty Adama. Adam was a living creature. He was a son of God. He was an image bearer. And then notice what God does in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God made Adam, and eventually Eve, and all their offspring to emulate him. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about what we've been seeing God do throughout this section to this point. What's he been doing? He's been working. He's been creating. He's been fashioning. He's been showing off his power. He's been revealing his gracious providence. And ultimately, if God is glorious, he calls us to glorify him. And what is this if it's not emulation? Now, can we speak things into existence by merely, you know, saying something with our mouths? Of course not. Do we have the kind of power to create the things that we see around us? No. Can we sustain them? Clearly not. Can we make another living creature? Of course not. But there is some degree to which we can do some of those things. This building was built by men. The clothes that you are wearing were, were knitted together by men and women. The food that we cook is largely due to the fact that we have prepared it. The children that we raise up were born from our wives' bodies. Now, we didn't make that child. God gave life to that child. We didn't make the natural resources that make up this building. We don't provide the food that we cook. But in some way, as we work and fashion and construct and put things together and protect things, we are emulating the one true God. And this leads us to the very thought of what work is in the first place. This is why work existed before the fall came. 
God gave us something to do that we might emulate Him. Now, this causes our eyes to be lifted to Him because we're copycats. You know what it's like when you have little kids? Your kids are running around, and they're doing the things that you're doing, and you kind of delight in that. The other night, uh, Whitney went to bed. She was super tired. It was late anyway, but Kentucky, which is my favorite college basketball team, was playing a late game, and they started an hour after my kid's bedtime. But um, my, my dad was coming in from out of town. My dad's from Kentucky. Kentucky's in our roots. And I told the boys they could stay up late. So they were up like three hours late. But they're sitting next to me under a blanket on the couch watching my team. I love that. I love it when my kids copycat good things in me. I don't love it when they copycat the bad things in me, which reveals so many simple things about me. But we delight when our offspring like the things that we do. And, and that's what emulation is. We are, we are lifting our eyes to the one true God, and we're seeing the things that we're doing, and we're copying Him. Not in the same degree, but in the same way, sort of. We emulate Him, and our work gives us opportunity to do that. So, so think about that. As we work, we are having our eyes lifted to the one who really has done it all. In fact, as you see here, God plants the garden, God's the one who makes it pleasant to the side and good for food. God made it all. I mean, when you think about what man really contributed, it's kind of embarrassing, right? God did it all. And, and that's what happens when we work. We're thinking about the one true God who made all things. Now, maybe you don't do this every day when you go to work. Maybe you don't do this as you peer at creation. But maybe today, through the lens of the Scriptures, you might begin to do that. As you work, think about the one true God who has worked and made all things good. As you look at His creative order, think about what that creative order reveals about the one true God. But not only does work lift our eyes to the one true God, it also gives us purpose. You see, we're not here just to be aimless beings. We have something to do. And as the one true God worked and fashioned all things, He gave us roles to play which means that the thing that you are called to do has honor. So moms at home who are taking care of children, cooking, cleaning, meeting with your girlfriends and talking about Jesus, this is not empty. There is great purpose. There is great honor in the fact that you are taking care of a man who often can't take care of himself. And if God has blessed you with children, children who need your constant care, a home is a place of comfort and being and safety. And as you, as you master all these things, it's a reflection of the one true God you're emulating. So it lifts your eyes to the one who made all things and takes care of you, and then you emulate him by taking care of those you love. There's purpose to this. Men, women, as you go to your secular jobs, your vocational jobs on a daily basis, this is not a wasted time. It perhaps is a little bit easier when you love your job. It's harder when you don't like your job. But even if you don't like your job, you have an opportunity to show honor to a tyrannical boss sometimes. You have an opportunity to work for pay perhaps that you think is not in keeping with what you deserve. This shows humility. It shows endurance. As you go to your job, you're creating. 
You're forming. Not only are you helping your own family because you get a paycheck at the end of every two weeks, but you're helping society and culture in very constructive ways. So whether you're at home wiping noses or at work teaching or working on cell towers or parts of vehicles or whatever the case may be, there's purpose to what you're doing. It calls you to be thankful to the one true God who has worked and continues to take care of you. You think about that. God not only created, He sustains His creation at every moment. That's astounding in a far, far more limited way, we do some of the same things. So, our eyes are lifted in thanksgiving to what He's done for us, but also to not see lack of purpose in what we have been called to do. So, do your job. Live in your sphere of influence with all of your heart. And frankly, if you think about it, this is bigger than just our job. I mean, I don't think necessarily this is all Adam was supposed to do. Like, take care of those five trees, and then when that's done, you're done for the day. Adam had all kinds of responsibility. He had a wife. Eventually, he would have kids. Probably a village sprung up, and he probably was like the first elder. He had all kinds of responsibilities. We do too, right? We have jobs. We have families. We have homes. We have friends. We have a church. And in all these spheres, you are to engage with fervor and intensity and joy. How do you feel about your sphere of influence today? Your job, your family, your home, your church. Of course, there is need for rest. God has already patterned that at the end of chapter 1. There are times you must disengage from that because you grow weary. But at the same time, you are called to these things with faithfulness and endurance. So God made the world for us to emulate Him. It's an arena in which we can emulate Him. Secondly, I think in the next verses we find that God made the world for us to enjoy Him. In verses 10 through 14, look at what this land is like. It's abundant. There's plenty of hydration there, not only to give man drink, but to give water to the plants that he will need to eat. And not only this, it makes it a beautiful land. It, it makes it bud. It makes it green. My dad was saying to me last night that out in Colorado where they live, it was snowing, and they're hoping for another decent snowfall by the middle of April. It snows out there for at least that long. And they've had a significant drought out there for a long time. In fact, the Rocky Mountains in that area are really just kind of a high desert. And because it's been so dry, the trees are so dry that when a forest fire um, takes root. It just burns, you know, thousands of acres because the, the trees are just ready to flame up. But when they have really good winters, really good moisture content, then it creates great streams and rivers, and it waters the land, and it's not so dangerous to live there because of forest fires. And he said last spring in particular, they had had a really good snowfall over the winter, and he said the spring was so green and beautiful. Well, that's what God does with the water. He gives us drink. He gives us the ability to cultivate plants, and then he, he makes it verdant and abundant, and it's gorgeous. Think about what God's doing here. He's effusively, there's that word again, pouring out grace. He didn't have to, but he did. So God made the world for us to enjoy him. So let's think about this for just a moment. Do we need water to sustain biological life? Yeah. Does God give it? Yes. We need it for drink. 
We need it for our crops. And not only that, He made this a beautiful place. He made it a place for us to enjoy. It's not sterile. It's a place that we can enjoy in all of its detail. But notice, it's, it's not just the water which makes this place so abundant. There, there's amazing treasures here. There's gold, bdellium, and onyx stones. Now, I don't think that this is some proof text for the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers. Okay? I don't think it means that because God blessed Adam, that if we'll just be faithful back to God and do our part in our sphere of influence, that we can go dig in some random place and then we're going to find like a treasure trove of gold. It's not what this text is teaching. But when it speaks of, of this kind of abundance, it's showing that God made the world to be a rich place to be enjoyed. And I think perhaps it also hints at what's coming at the end. Remember at the end of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, What's the, what's the eternal city like? It has gates that are made out of precious stones. It has foundations that are beautiful and gorgeous. It's a splendid place. It's fabulous. Is it perhaps true that because of the fall, some of the richness of the earth was stripped away and mankind was left begging? Mankind was left longing? Might this also sort of subtly indicate to us why we all deep down are relatively greedy? If the fall had never happened, we all would have had everything we needed and probably way more than we needed. I mean, think about it. At the beginning, there was one couple on the earth. They had way more than they needed. And not only was it watered well, there was treasure there. What would it be like to live in a land where no one sinned and no one was greedy and there was tons of treasure? And we wouldn't compare it. We wouldn't feel jealous of those who had more. We would enjoy it and we would share it. And ultimately what we would do is we would say, look at the king who gave it. Isn't he good? I think that's what's coming at the end. That's why the new Jerusalem is so fabulous because it points to the greatness of God. And then we won't have any need. It won't matter how many onyx stones are around. I don't even know what a bdellium is. It sounds pretty great, but we'll have plenty of it. It's perhaps true that one of the reasons that we're so greedy is that we're longing after what is lacking. The problem for us is we try to hoard it and steal it and manipulate life to get more than people around us. When in point of fact, after we come back in renewal to the one true God who made all things and sustained all things, we have to just trust Him. There's a lot of subtleties in this text. God made the world for us to emulate Him and to enjoy Him. And I think that even those of us today who see so much brokenness in the world, that causes us to look forward to what's coming. What we see in front of us here in this text is really sort of beyond belief. I mean, if you think about it, not, not one of us has ever known a day where everything has been perfect. I mean, even when you were a kid, I think there's this sort of ache in you that, that, that recognizes things aren't quite right. There are people around us who are selfish, of course, us included, and they hurt us, they use us, they abuse us. This explains why children can be so mistreated and unspeakable things can be done to them. 
that explains why war exists and tension, explains why this world is a desperate place and to this day and since the womb and until we leave this place in its current state, we will ache. But there's coming a day when the ache will be replaced with a deep-seated rest that cannot be taken away. So this text not only causes us to look back and say, oh, isn't that so great? You see, this isn't just a fantasy novel, though. It's not just to allow us to escape to another world. It's to point us to one that was and one that's coming, and the one that's coming will be even better. We enjoy him now, but one day we'll enjoy him fully. So I call you to patiently wait, read and dream and wait, and then you ache again, and you read and you dream and you wait, and then you ache again, and round and round our sojourn goes. Israel was like this. We sojourn like them. Thirdly and lastly today, God made the world for us to worship Him. It's interesting at the end of verse 9 that Moses says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's this amazing garden. And it's not like a radish garden. It's like a huge park. Think of like Central Park, okay? And in the middle, in the very middle, where it's most abundant, there's two trees. Likely, from Moses' description, they stood right next to each other. So the Lord God, in verse 15, takes the man and puts him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God puts Adam and Eve in this garden. He hasn't made Eve yet. We'll talk about her next week. But he makes Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and he gives them one law. What's the law? Don't eat from that tree. The tree of life, which stood next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, probably didn't have like immortal fruit on it wasn't like that if you could climb up into its high branches and pick the juicy ripe fruit and take a bite that suddenly, you know, your face would start glowing and you would feel different and you would tingle and all of a sudden you'd have immortality. It's probably not what it's indicating. After all, trees don't give life. God gives life. Somehow, though, perhaps the tree carried some kind of property under the care of God that if you continued to eat it, you would continue to live on. We'll see more of that in chapter 3. This other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is equally, if not more, mysterious. And perhaps one of the greatest mysteries is why it was there in the first place. I mean, think about this. God makes all things good. And it has to mean that even this tree itself was good. There wasn't some sort of poison running through the taproot up to the branches of this tree. That wasn't what was going on. I think the tree was real, but I think the tree is symbolic. And I think primarily what it stands for, because again, there's a great mystery here, is the idea of of autonomy, life apart from God. Now think about this. Is it important in life for you to know the difference between good and evil? Yeah, we need to be able to, to be discerning, right? 
if you have a choice to make, you need to be able to know how will this choice reflect God's glory. If I do this, will it, will it dishonor God? If I do this alternatively, will it please God? We need to know the difference between good and evil. So knowing the difference between good and evil is not a bad thing. But think of what Adam was. Here's a guy who had just been made out of the dust of the ground, and then God animated him with his own breath. And then God made a place for him to live. And even though he called Adam to do things in the garden, to cultivate and so forth, ultimately Adam depended completely on God. Adam was God's son. What does a son need? A son needs a father to care for him, to teach him, to give him what he needs. But the tree stood as an opportunity for Adam to be tested, to see if we would continue to trust God and live under his rule, or instead turn inward and do his own thing. The tree gave an opportunity for Adam to be tested. Would he worship and trust the one true God, or would he worship himself and trust himself? So God gave Adam a test. This does not make God bad. God made mankind with free will at this point. Now, just as a minor disclaimer, no one since Adam has had free will. Adam, however, had perfectly free will at the beginning. Ever since then, we've been trapped under the sinful bondage that we come into the world with. But Adam had perfectly free will. He had the ability not to sin. But God put this in front of him. We'll go more into this, of course, in chapter 3, but I, I want to help you think about this at least briefly today. Every day, God gives us opportunities to decide whether we will worship the one true God and trust Him, or whether we will worship self and trust self. God says, don't eat from that tree. Choose to keep my laws, and you can do it. And when you do it, you're showing that you value me and that you're trusting me. But when you fail to do that, when you, when you do it not, what you're showing is that you're worshiping yourself. You're trusting yourself. Now, we know how the story ends, and of course, it's far more tragic than we can even articulate. But we have opportunities now as God's renewed people because Jesus Christ has come he was crucified and took our punishment. He was buried and resurrected and conquered sin and death. And if we trust Him, He'll take away our corruption. He'll take away our lack of worship. He'll take away self-trust and idolatry, everything that's bound up and going after the fruit of this tree, and He'll remove it, and He'll replace it with His righteousness. This is the gospel. And for those of us who have been renewed by Jesus Christ, we have opportunities each day to worship God instead of self, to trust Him instead of ourselves. The tree was real, but the tree was a symbol of autonomy and self-worship if Adam would go after it. And so each day, our lives are not that much different. What did Israel need to hear? What did the Hebrew people needed to hear as they sojourned? This God who has come down upon Sinai and given you more than 600 laws, way more than Adam had. And of course, the difference between Adam and them is Adam had the ability not to disobey. 
most of these Israelites who were not yet renewed in their hearts did not. They needed to know that there is one true God and he calls them to emulate him. We have a responsibility to do that. But if you think about it, broken laws, and of course those of us who have this capacity now to, to or lack of capacity to obey God, it, it's frustrating. Isn't it frustrating to know that God has laws but, but we can't keep them? This is why new birth is so essential. When you're given a new heart, you have the ability now to obey. But even for those of us who have new hearts, who have now a new ability to obey, we still sin. Adam lived in a land where there was no sin, and he had the ability not to sin. Israel lived in a land, primarily, where not only were there tons of laws they didn't obey, they mostly couldn't obey. Now, because of Christ, not only should we obey, we can obey. And subtly, of course, this calls us to... In Christ, but it also once again calls us to look forward to the time when there is a new land and the tree of life is there, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil seems to not be there. Where not only where there'll be no sin, but we can't even possibly think of sinning. That day is coming. So we trust Christ in the here and now, and we look forward to the finality of our redemption. So subtly, I think this text teaches us that God made this world as an arena in which we can emulate Him, in which we can enjoy Him, and in which we can worship Him. So how are you doing with those three things? Perhaps you've never thought about it from this angle before. So I want you to take this text this week and I want you to meditate on it. I want you to look behind the text from time to time, to not just read the words on the page, but to think deeply, to meditate. As you emulate Him, are your eyes lifted to Him? Are you thankful for Him? And are you doing your best in the sphere in which He has placed you to discharge your responsibilities? Secondly, as you look at the world all around you, are you enjoying Him? And does this ache within you that realizes that this world is broken and not yet right? Does it cause you to, to manipulate life and try to make it work your own way, which only leads to more heartache? Or does it lift your eyes to the one who is making all things new and will gather you together to him in days to come? And then thirdly and lastly, with all the choices that are put in front of us on a daily basis, who are you worshiping? You see, every decision that you and I make is a decision of worship. We are expressing the worthiness of what we think is in an object by the attention we give to it. Our jobs, our money, our kids, our sexuality, our egos. And when we give worth to things that are not the one most worthy thing, we have created idols. We can do this out of evil things and we can do this out of clearly good things, but God alone is the one who is truly worthy. And as we demonstrate this through attention and affection, we are worshiping the one true God, not trusting ourselves, but trusting Him. So, how are you doing? I suspect that all of us have a long, long way to go in all of this, but remember, God made all things good. Through Jesus, He is making all things good. And one day, Everything will be good, and to make up a word, it will be gooder.
than it's ever been. Let's pray.